Life's Learning Curve, Episode 76. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Season 5 of our podcast from the Mid-Midwest called Life's Learning Curve. And I'm your host, Paul Hart. Tell me a story. Storytelling. What is our podcast about? Well, for all these years here at Life's Learning Curve, we niche down. Niche down? Yeah. What? Well, what I mean is real-life storytelling. We know that listeners like to hang out with other like-kind people just like them. So when you take a step back in life... Life can be pretty ironic and full of twists. That's us. Now, on today's show, just a few years back, I made a terrible discovery that men make about their own fathers sooner or later. One day I sat there and I knew that the 91-year-old man, my father, sitting before me, was not my aging father, but a boy. A boy just like I had been, just like I was. A boy who grew up and had children of his own. And he adopted this role called father, being a father for my sister and me, my sister Sue and me. So on this episode, get your sleds out. Time for some fun. Let's get going. Sebastian. Season five. All right, here we go. Life's Learning Curve. I'm Paul Hart. Episode, The Letter Left in the Desk Drawer. Stand by. My dad. He didn't have a father. Well, he did have a father, but he had died when my dad was only three years old. Robbing him and his older brother Richard and his sister Evelyn of a life with any positive male role model, possibly even a hero, maybe. Now, his mom, Della, my grandma, was a busy, industrious housewife raising her kids, growing up and preparing food, maintaining the farmhouse so the family could survive. Of course, Like I said already, I'm referring to my dad's father. He was the one who passed away when when my father was age three. It was around 1928, so we're going back a bit, when his father took that loss. The family farm, the acreage, the livestock and property were, well, they were all auctioned, then sold off. Della knew that she had to make that money last from the auction, and she asked the only banker that she knew what she might do to make that money grow and prosper, sustain a life for her fatherless family. The banker smartly guessed about a new burgeoning company called AT&T, American Telephone and Telegraph, which she should invest. So just a few years later, 1929, times were hard. The stock market crashed, and times got even more severe for that family. However, the AT&T stock it held the line for the most part during those years. Now think of it, think of what it must have been like for her, you know, this unprecedented stock market failings. The banks had failed. Nobody really knew what to do to come out of this horrible funk. And should she keep the money in stocks or should she cash out? It was a tough decision and things weren't looking much better. So, based on more advice, she chose to keep the money invested and not to panic. The banker who had been wiped out by the stock market crash told her that that particular stock investment had legs and most likely would emerge strong, and it did. 
It grew slow and steady until it took off around the 1980s. One of the greatest tragedies of life is that fathers and sons can love each other deeply without ever getting to know each other. For my dad, that was past age three. I mentioned this stock before because two things happened because of the AT&T stock. Number one, Della and her kids, Richard Evelyn and my future father, Bob was his name, moved into town from the family farm. It was a small rural town called Lily Lake, Illinois, where Della and her family, they had to now live and they had to make do with what they had, which wasn't very much. They rented. It was a very simple and modest life at that time. And number two, the stock market crash had made Della hold tight to the only money her family had. And she chose to fight through the poverty of the Great Depression and save that money for the future. No one, including Della, knew how long or how painful the Great Depression would be. And as uh, historians reflect on it, it wasn't until World War II around 1941 that things began to uh, recover in the economy, probably because of the wartime economy. But Della, back then in 1929, chose to fight it out. She brought in neighbor's laundry for trade or for a few cents here and there. She grew peas, beans, onions, mushrooms, tomatoes, and corn in that small town. And she made them go as far as they could. Now, the community knew that my grandma, Della, this former farm family that had done pretty well for themselves, had gone from middle class to, well, uh, pretty much nothing. If a local farmer passed by Della's house and her three kids very infrequently, but it happened, he brought in to the fatherless family's house some meat or some corn for a meal, and Della made that meal stretch into a week's worth of meals. Around harvest time each year, local farmers would provide more, maybe a bushel or two of apples. And I remember my dad (laughs) telling me very little about growing up in that small rural community, except the following things. One, Ma wasn't too patient with me, and I was kind of hyper, so I couldn't sit still. So I needed the redirection. Oh, I really needed the redirection. I did. Ma didn't have time for my impulsiveness and my inability to sit still. A whack (laughs) usually set me still. Did you deserve it, Dad? Oh, yeah. You bet I did. Two, I remember in Lily Lake, my brother Richard, older, he was a great guy and kind of always looked out for me. And my sister Evelyn, she took care of me a lot at times when I was being hyper and impulsive. They were the calm. Uh, Back then, I was the storm. Three. See that photo of me and my family? See that thing in the upper pocket of my shirt? Well, that was probably something they gave me. A photographer gave me a comb or something, so I would sit still. I didn't have my own comb as a boy. Apparently, I'd sit still for a photo because of a comb. Four. When I wasn't very old, maybe six or seven years old, there wasn't much to do in that small town. When I was a boy, I remember one day I was just swinging around a speed limit sign in town and a car came by doing about 35 miles an hour and smacked me right in the shoulder. Ah! The next thing I knew, I woke up in old Doc Watson's 
upstairs of his house. Now, I guess the neighbors had carried me there. There were no x-rays out in Lily Lake back then. Where am I? In that town, I lay there with my broken arm and a broken collarbone. Doc Watson leaned in and put his weight on my torso and Be still, he Bob. reset it right Be there. Still. You could hear it. I probably never screamed that loud before or since then. Five. Well, I was riding in the back seat of a car, which I didn't get to do very often, and it all looked really interesting to me. And I reached over by the back inner door, and I pulled on the handle, and I fell out. Matter of fact, I did this more than once. I remember I just hit the rough asphalt and curled into a ball, and I rolled to a stop. And my mom would then come over and see if I was okay after getting out of the car, and then she'd give me a whack for falling out. <laughs> Don't grab that handle. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, I deserved it. Yes. Six. We always had a bushel of something like, you know, something sitting outside the back door, and as I left the house that we rented in Lily Lake to find my neighborhood friends, I'd grab an apple or whatever came in that bushel basket, and I'd take it with me. And when I went in the house, I'd grab an apple. Good memory. Good fresh meals. Seven. Now, since I didn't have my own dad, uh, some of the men in the community, two in particular, took me to father and son events with their boys. When I was in high school, my Uncle Paul took me out golfing, and he taught me how to throw his fastball. Yeah, I liked hanging around with him and other people that kind of invested time in me, and I liked the good men. I saw the difference of the good men, and I did see the bad ones. And I saw what the good ones did and how they treated their families, and I, I liked that. But for me, I was hyper, I was impulsive, I was in trouble a lot. How could I become one of those guys, a good guy? It was after World War II, and my father came home. His hyperactivity and impulsive behaviors were gone. Why? Well... As he said to me many years later, There was a war. You know, war will do that to you. You've got to sit still. And sometimes your life and other people's lives might depend on you sitting still. So I learned to sit still. I can only imagine that it was during those terrifying moments in the World War II South Pacific Theater that my dad made a decision, and it was a life decision. Like most veterans, he did not talk much about his time in the service. I can only guess that my dad found himself in or around some horrible critical life or death situation, you know, from time to time, not all the time, but from time to time. And that makes you think back when he was in the South Pacific, he could remember all the good men in his past life that had taken time for him to take him to ball games or golf or just conversations or sharing quality time with him. Just a boy on the Counting sheep to pass the time Found himself in a quandary Face to face with a lion I'm much stronger than a sling 
But he knew he was mighty when that giant came on the scene. When the fight became impending, oh, he knew to stand his ground. He could gaze upon his history, see the victory in the ground. Every stone of his remembrance. Let the record show. Just a boy with conviction is no match for a fool. It was then, in the Pacific Theater of the War, that my dad decided that was who he wanted to be. He was a part of that generation. You know, the, they call it the greatest generation ever. Proud, strong, humble, men of few words. Making a big life change is pretty scary, but know what's even scarier? Regret. Quote, by Zig Ziglar. As for me, I thought a lot about it, and I wondered that if that was why, as an adult, my dad was so good to my family. And he was. No, nobody's perfect, obviously, but he was good to us. He worked two jobs just to make sure we had what we needed to get by. And that's some. My dad was strict. My dad was structured. But here's a guy who just was not unapproachable. Now, I can tell you very confidently back in those days, and probably many years afterwards, I did things because I wanted to please him. I wanted to please him a lot. I could tell how much he loved my mom. He worked hard for our family. He didn't say those words. He didn't come in and say, I work so hard, I love you. You He showed it. And after many years, I understood that the loss of my dad's father had done something to him. It gave him two paths to travel in his life. You know, he chose the one that was being a good man, a father, a child of God, and take the foolishness of his childhood and humbly and with very few words in his life, help shape others for the better. So my dad became a father and I became his son. He was careful to make sure that our family always, like I said, had food on the table and a car so we could get places. Middle class all the way, that was us. He had seen how his own mother, Della, had struggled all her life with finances. He worked two jobs, sometimes maybe even three jobs, to make sure that my sister Sue and I did not struggle. My mom had decided to return to teaching after I was in second grade, and although teachers did not make a whole lot of money back then, I can tell you this, our family at that time, with both my parents working, definitely stayed afloat. Now we had the security. Our household budget, which was watched closely, I remember mom paid the bills every Friday night sitting at the dining room table. Dad often came home uh, tired. His schedule was basically 7 a.m. in the morning till 4 p.m. in the afternoon, 
daily as a education principal and then from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. most evenings as a realtor or a football or basketball official. As a matter of fact, my dad's time was so consumed by his jobs that my sister Sue and I treasured all this time we, we did when he came home. He came home. We were happy to see him. I can't remember one time when I thought, I wish, you know, dad would be home. I knew he was out doing things for the family. So why do we treasure this time? Well, number one, when dad came home, he was always happy. And he went, first thing, and he hugged my mom, gave her a kiss probably, and made sure my sister and I were okay. He'd come check on us. And if he had a night off, if he wasn't working or doing refereeing or working for the realtor, we would do something special as a family. We always did. And it wasn't that frequently, but we always did. Like, we would maybe go out to eat. It would be a diner. It would be a drive-in. It would be a small restaurant or some someplace like that. But we did it as a group, as a family. Or we'd go what we used to call window shopping downtown, which is just looking in the windows and looking at the different stuff. Or, or go to see friends somewhere. we drive somewhere. Sometimes it was just a trip in the car to get ice cream at Dairy Queen. My dad understood something. He understood family. And he had realized his dreams of growing up and taking good care of his own family. Whatever you do, wherever you are, no matter the time, the place, near or far, in all the good and all that's hard I love you cause you're a piece of my heart I love you cause you're a piece of my heart Normal is normal. Now, unless you know differently, and I did not know differently, from our family's routine, that's what I knew growing up, you know your family's routine and what they do and what they don't do. Well, my dad was home with us. We did things as a family unit, and treats were not an option. My sister and I would seek candy or chocolate, like typical kids in a drugstore or somewhere, and we would ask my mom or my dad if we could, you know, could we have that? Could we have the candy bar or something? And the answer, we knew what it was. It always was going to be no. We knew that (laughs) ahead of time. But we had to ask. We were kids. That's what we did. (laughs) My mother would quietly whisper something to the effect of, and she'd always get really close to your ear so you could almost feel the breath in your ear, and she'd whisper, No, I'm sorry, but, you know, you have a birthday coming up, and would you rather have this candy or a birthday present? Or she'd say, We're on a budget, Paul, so we can, you know, maybe go on a vacation next year. Would you rather have the chocolate, the candy bar, or would you rather take a vacation next year? Then she'd pull back. She had quite a bit of child psychology courses in college, but God bless her, because we did not need those immediate gratification treats. She gave us structure and a somewhat decent reason why. (laughs) I mean, really, we were able to figure out the price of a candy bar and the price of a vacation was, well, not the same thing, but the concept was if we save our money, we can do 
X, Y, or Z. Now, as for my dad, he was successfully fulfilling that financial need with the family, money, the middle class income. But the day came, for him, I guess, the day when I think he realized something. And I can only guess this because he never talked about it openly. He was working so hard for the family and, you know, so we could at least be in that middle class framework that he felt that he had forgotten to experience life one-to-one, sharing experiences with, with me in particular. It was the last night of winter break. We had just had about three feet of snowfall. I was this awkward 13-year-old. You know, if anybody can get past 13 and not feel awkward, you've done a great job. Even though we would be going back to school the very next day on the following Monday, it was a Sunday night. And after dinner, my dad walked up to me and said, after we cleared the table, Want to go sledding? Tonight at Channing Park. Grown men never actually get so old that they forget what it was like being a boy. As I said, I was 13 years old, and my dad, I believe, if I have to guess, he was around 46 at the time. It was in the frigid darkness of that winter night that my dad and I hit the slopes. It was dark out, sledding at the snow draped Channing Park. Being nighttime, it was just us. Everyone else was at home getting to bed early for the start of school the next day. It felt kind of magical. Channing Park had long, steep hills and just very few trees, sparse trees, and one intense spotlight that came off the parking lot quite a, quite a bit away from where we were. But the snow helped light up that entire park. The newly fallen snow itself seemed to illuminate like the entire park. It was kind of neat. It was like a spotlight from God. (laughs) That night, my dad showed me his famous running leap into the air with the sled underneath his chest and stomach as the sled seemed to fly off the snow as it descended quickly down the hill. And he yelled to me, That's what my friends used to call a belly whopper. We ran. We yelled. We fell off the sleds. We crashed. We wiped out. We rolled out of control down the steep hills, and we both laughed harder than I think we ever had, both of us. It became clear that Dad wasn't doing something just for me. He was doing something with me and liking it as much as I did, or even possibly more than me. From 6.30 to 8.30 that night, we both found it. We found what was lost. For one of us, it was a son and his father doing life together. For the other... A son who had never gotten to sled with his real father, getting to play one more time again. But this time, this time as an adult.
that next Father's Day, I did something, something for him. He didn't need another Father's Day tie or hand-drawn card from me. Instead, that year, I drew him a picture of us sledding with a note attached. And they were the words only a 13-year-old adolescent boy could have come up with. Now, after my dad passed at age 91, I inherited his brown walnut desk. And I found myself eagerly setting it up in my own office at home. Now, to my surprise, deep in the main drawer, the center drawer, past boxes of staples and paper clips, I found it. The note. The note I had written at age 13. He kept it. As I opened it up, I saw my drawing of a sledding in the snow. (laughs) I laughed because at the time I thought I'd really nailed it, that I'd done a really great drawing. (laughs) A good job on on, on that picture. So I reopened the note. Immediately saw my old, the way I used to write, large, loopy, uncontrolled cursive. I always had a problem with it, but I did it. My letter was full of youthful truths and well-intended focus. And I reread it again. Dad, you are a great dad. I know because most of my friends' dads just ignore them or they yell at them. Not you. You take your extra time and spend it with me. When no one could go sledding and my friends were being stupid last winter, You took time to play and go sledding with me. You always play catch with me when I ask. You sit with me and we talk when Sue and Mom go shopping. And we always seem to find stuff to laugh at. We don't say it out loud, Dad. I love you. But I can tell that you do, too. I hope that you can tell that I do, too. Easy, you are my hero, your son, Paul. So what is our takeaway today? What did we learn? What did, well, what did I learn? It's very simple. Tomorrow is not promised. Make your best life happen now. And also, we never know the love of a parent until we become parents ourselves. For Life's Learning Curve, right? (laughs) I'm Paul Hart. Subscribe to Life's Learning Curve at lifeslearningcurve.org and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser. Episode 76 of Life's Learning Curve Podcast, The Letter Left in the Desk Drawer, was put together by Sebastian T. Dog and Paul Hart. 
Find us all places podcasts are heard and find us online at lifeslearningcurve.org and please subscribe. We'd love to have you as our new listeners. Come on on board. Episode 76, The Letter Left in the Desk Drawer. I'm Paul Hart and we'll see you next time on Life's Learning Curve.